All right. Well, my name is Tommy, like I introduced earlier. I'm on staff here at Mercy House. I've had the pleasure of having the opportunity to preach several times this spring, um, and it's just been a huge joy. I love doing it. Um, this is the last time I'm going to be preaching for a little while. Robert's coming back soon, so he's gonna, you're going to see more of his face up here. Um, but at this point, we're a couple sermons into our summer sermon series, which is called Brief, where we're going through the shortest books in the Bible. We're going through 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and um, Philemon, and today we're going to finish up 2nd John, where you've had this kind of this buffet of different preachers between Dan Moylan, Chris Gow last week, and then myself this week. So uh, last week, Chris did a really good job. He did a great job helping us see really the weight of, of John's exhortation uh, for us to love one another. And Chris explained that, that this is a very actionable item for us. It, it, it's this conscious and, and deliberate thing that we can choose to do, which is called love. Um, and this love is, is not this loose, fluffy, kind of cherry on top for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, like you should just do this because you're a Christian, uh, but really kind of makes up the, the whole of what it means to follow Jesus. So while love one another, this phrase uh, really could shift, it has shifted in culture to kind of this coffee mug proverb, uh, we really see it in Mark 12 that Jesus raises loving God and loving others as the two most important commandments of all of the 613 that are laid out in the Old Testament. So when Jesus is asked which ones are the most important, these are the ones that he, he, he points out. And Chris did a great job helping us understand that the love that Jesus holds so highly as a command um, and the love that John is exhorting us to have for one another it is not one of cupidity. Right? I love that word cupidity. Uh, Chris was talking about that last week. Um, cupidity was defined as this love that's really based in kind of a greedy, lustful consumption, really a, a love that is self-gratifying, it's, it's self-building, it's self-serving is what that type of love is. The, this love, while I think it's incredibly commonly understood then and now, uh, was not what Jesus or what John was outlining as they were talking about love. They were talking about this agape love, as Chris pointed out, a love that isn't self-serving, but actually is selflessly serving the recipient of that love. I thought someone tapped me on the shoulder, so I'm going to move that back. <laughs> so, um, so that's what we're talking about. That's what Chris was talking about um, Another way that he phrased it was this my life for yours kind of love. And ultimately, this is best demonstrated by Jesus himself on the cross as he carried our sins and paid our debt and showed us that complete my life for yours love. And so this is the type of love that that humans need. Chris pointed this out, that that we were made to both experience this, but also to give this to other people. And he pointed out this this crazy fact that the the lack of this type of love, it can actually literally be fatal for people. And so I wanted to give this deeper synopsis of Chris's sermon, because one, I I thought it was really well done. It kind of bears repeating. Uh, But two, because this is uh, as we go into this morning's text, it really turns on this concept of love as if it were the hinge between the two concepts. It, it's, it's the connecting concept from which John shifts his perspective. He's not turning on to a completely new uh, subject with zero connection to what there was before. So we need to keep this in mind, this idea of love 
because it's really informing what he's communicating next. So let me pray for us one time, and then we're going to look at the word. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us uh, through the scriptures, but God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that we would um, understand more what that means uh, and be able to experience the joy um, of having that knowledge. And we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 John. You probably should have it memorized at this point. It's about 13 verses. And we're going to be camped out here. We are going to jump around in a lot of different texts this morning. So all of them are going to be on the screen behind us as we go through them. um, So you can reference them. But this is really the place where we're going to camp out most. So starting in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So John gets pretty serious pretty fast here. He's shifting about talking about love for one another to these deceivers who he's calling the antichrist. So there's a few things that we need to break down here so we can really better understand where John's coming from, right? Because these are some pretty serious allegations. So first, John is talking about this group of specific people who have a very distorted and an incorrect view of the gospel, which includes a Jesus that is not a physical Jesus. These are people who believe that God being, being God wouldn't be able to fully fit into the physical confines of a human being, a human body. Jesus may have been influenced by God. He, he may have been directed in certain ways by God, but he wasn't literally God in the flesh. That's what these people are believing. And it's not just that, that, that they're existing in this place of, of wrong belief um, in Jesus, but, but it's actually understood by John's language that um, they're, they're going out into the world, right? Which means that these are people that are on mission with this unbelief, this disbelief, this wrong belief. They're evangelizing the world like the disciples with this gospel message that Jesus wasn't fully God. They're most likely going door-to-door, preaching and teaching this to everyone that they come into contact with, just like uh, their their church-planting counterparts would be. Now, there are many problems with this, mostly that a gospel where Jesus Christ isn't God is not the gospel, right? So that's the primary problem of what's happening here. Uh, This idea, it undermines a core biblical truth known as the Incarnation, the incarnation, which literally means in flesh. The incarnation is God becoming a human being made of flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this idea of the incarnation is. And we see this idea of the incarnation most explicitly articulated in the opening chapter of John's gospel, in John 1. So this is going to be on the screen behind me. So verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John likes to use this nickname for for Jesus. He uses the word word as the nickname for Jesus. And and it goes on in verse 14, and the word, this is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we see this laid out in Scripture. 
And so the, I think the question is, is why is the incarnation such a big deal, and why do we need to understand it as followers of Jesus? This is a piece of theology, a piece of understanding who God is that is absolutely crucial to our faith and our spiritual well-being. It's a foundational pillar that holds and supports really the, the entire construct of the Christian faith. And as John points out here, there are serious implications if we're operating as missional believers with an incorrect understanding of this doctrine. So John what he does is he calls these people out, and he's, he's calling people who are going around preaching this, this not gospel, um, he, he calls them the antichrist, which is another way of saying that, that they're the devil, because what they're doing is really subverting the teaching of Christ and the good news of the gospel. They're manipulating it with this incorrect idea, and, and honestly, they're perverting it. They're diminishing the value and the glory of God himself by preaching this. And that's why they're called the Antichrist here. They're they're the antithesis of Christ, the the devil. So Mercy House, this is one of those things that we got to get right. We want to really make sure that we understand this doctrine because it's it's not something to have a loose grip on. And I think that as a pillar, if we can grasp it firmly, if we can understand it, it supports an incredible amount of just beautiful, amazing realities and truths that will drive us into a deeper worship of God. And so this morning, I want to walk us through a, a really a crash course on what the doctrine of incarnation, or, 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 or really God becoming human in Jesus, what that means for us. I have seven points this morning, so if you're a note taker, just know that we're going through seven, so I have space on that piece of paper. Seven points to show the value and the necessity for Jesus to be fully God and fully man. Again, these are going to be on the screen behind me. Number one, it is through Jesus that God is revealed to us. It is through Jesus that God is revealed to, to, to us. So John 1.18, a little bit later after verse 14, um, this is John saying, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Has made him known. Later on in John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me, this is Jesus talking, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So it's through Jesus that we're able to see God in a way that would otherwise be impossible. And Jesus makes God known and knowable by being physical Flesh. This is in part because of what we see in Exodus. So Exodus thirty-three twenty. Um, but he said, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." You can't see God's face and live. This is what we see in Exodus as, he's, as God is talking to Moses. So there really is this this holiness, this glory uh, gap that separates us from God. You can think of it like an awesome factor, right? Like there's an awesomeness factor in God where God is literally too awesome too amazing to behold and also to live. So, so try to imagine right now, imagine an occasion where you saw something and you had a visceral reaction of awe or astonishment when you saw it. Maybe you were at the Grand Canyon, you looked out, and there was just like this response. You're like, whoa, like it takes the breath out of you. 
Maybe it's a beautiful piece of art somewhere. For me, and I don't mean to get mushy, but this is the first thing I thought of. It was seeing my wife, Caitlin, walk down the aisle at my wedding. And I had this visceral reaction when I saw her. And listen, I, like, I don't cry a lot. I don't think, like, crier is a word that anyone's ever used to describe me. I don't think, at least in the last, like, 15 years or so. But I, I cried. Like, that was my visceral reaction when I saw Caitlin walk around the corner, arm in arm with her father, and, and I cried. And it wasn't just, like, a tear. That, like, it was ugly cry. Like, I was, like, shaking uncontrollably. I had snot running. I was going like this as my wife was walking down the aisle. It was real ugly crying, uncontrollable shaking. So, like, you take that moment of visceral reaction to beauty and awesomeness and glory, whatever takes you to the emotional tipping point where you just have that reaction. I, I think when we see God's face, the face of absolute perfection and beauty and glory and holiness, and, and you multiply whatever reaction you had by like 100 billion, right? His beauty is just too vast. His awesomeness is too awesome. Our heads, I think, would literally explode. Like, that's what God is talking about. Like, you can't see me and live. Like, the reaction you would have is too great. Your brain cannot conceptualize it. We wouldn't be able to see God and live. But in Christ, God is revealed. We, we can see God in Jesus. Jesus reveals his divine nature in a way that no one in the world before this had seen God. Moses probably saw the most of God, and, and he saw God's back as he walked away. In Christ, we see God's face. That is crazy. Jesus is not just a representation of God. It's not like, well, if God was a person, this is what he would look like. No, he fully is God. So when we see Jesus, we see God. Without God coming in the flesh, in Jesus, God wouldn't be revealed to us in, in this personal, relational way as a human being. That's one. Two, through Jesus, prophecies and promises are fulfilled. Promises and prophecies are fulfilled. Another way of putting this is that God became flesh because he said he would. This was his plan. We see this in Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Talking about this seed, this Jesus that would come. 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your days are complete you, uh, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Right? You're seeing a consistency in this plan. Luke 1, verse 31 and 33, you will be with child, this is to Mary, and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, which was just referenced, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. So from Adam to Abraham to David all the way to Mary, this is the way that God had promised and, and ordained his solution to the problem of sin. Through a man born from a woman named Jesus. Without God coming in the flesh as Jesus, becoming, um, prophecies would be left unfilled. And God's promises would be empty. 
And this is a place where we can see the trustworthiness of God and, and the faithfulness of God as well. Number three, through Jesus, the law is perfectly fulfilled. Perfectly fulfilled. Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus fulfills the law perfectly as required. The righteous standard of God, the holiness required to be in his presence is fulfilled in Jesus. And that righteousness that is earned by Jesus is then imputed to us as followers of Christ. But without God coming in the flesh in Jesus, that requirement of the law would remain on us. And as we know from our experiences, perfect fulfillment of the law on our part is just simply impossible. And so we, we fail to follow that law let alone fulfill that law. And in our disobedience to the law, in our inability to follow the law, we sin. We sin. But number four, Jesus, through Jesus, the sins of the world are paid for. And just as the Son of Man, this is Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 2 Corinthians Five, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. To, uh, he made him sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. There's, there's a cost for that sin. We see in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death, but through Jesus, that debt is paid. So without Jesus in the picture, without Jesus coming in the flesh, our debt and sin remains on us to pay. But through Jesus, our sin is paid for. Our punishment is put on him. And not only are we debt-free because of Jesus, but five, through Jesus, we have freedom from the power of sin. We have freedom from the power of sin. In 1 John the letter before this, John says, for, the purpose, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So Satan is described as this deceiver and this thief consistently throughout Scripture. And the power that Satan has over us is, is the debt that we owe because of our sin. And it's not, that, uh, it's not that we pay him this debt. He doesn't get anything out of that debt, but Satan's power is in this unpaid debt. And when that debt is cleared, the power and the work of Satan is, is lost. He's disarmed, and we're no longer hostages to that debt. We're free from the power of sin and death. Without God becoming flesh in Jesus, we're, we're still held hostage we're still oppressed. We're still enslaved to sin. Number six, through Jesus, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us, who can sympathize with us. We're going through a lot of scriptures. I hope you're, you're, you're staying awake here. Hebrews chapter four, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but 
we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God is not this distant, detached, absent rule enforcer. In Christ, we have a God who intimately knows and understands us. He's, he's not just, not just in, a, in a way where a creator knows and, and interacts with the creation, but, but as a fellow man as well. Without God becoming flesh in Jesus, we would not have a high priest who advocates on our behalf with sympathy and, and sensitivity to our weaknesses. Looking at this Hebrews passage, I think you can go so far as to say that we likely wouldn't be able to approach the throne of grace with the same confidence to receive mercy and grace. But because God became in the, fle- came in, in the, in the flesh in Jesus, we can have that confidence to boldly approach Jesus. Number seven, through Jesus, we have an example for how we ought to live. We have an example for how we ought to live. Um, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And Jesus shows us how to live in this world, both in relationship to God the Father and also relationship with our brothers and our sisters. He shows us how to be on mission, how to love others selflessly with that agape love. He shows us the best possible way to live, to bring us to really the fullness of our joy here and now. And so without God coming in the flesh, we're on our own to figure out how to best live, how to best invest our time and our energy, how to combat depression, how to value the things around us. We're, we're lost without knowing what's best for us. And God becoming flesh in Jesus means we have a tangible example and a shepherd that will guide us as we live life. God, as a recap, God becoming flesh in Jesus is just absolutely crucial. Without Jesus, God isn't revealed to us in a personal conceivable way. Without Jesus, the prophecies and these promises are left unfulfilled and God's trustworthiness and his faithfulness are suspect. Without Jesus, the law of God's righteousness still has its legal demand on us. Sin would still need to be paid for by us. Sin would have power over us. We wouldn't have a great high priest who understands or sympathizes us in our weaknesses. And without Jesus, we wouldn't know how to operate, how to live on a daily basis. All of these things are held up by this doctrine of incarnation. Do you see why it's so crucial? So crucial. Do you see why it's such a big deal to preach, why, why it would be such a big deal to preach anything but the reality that Jesus is God. It's not this minor detail. It's not a loose-gripped footnote. It's a foundational pillar of the faith. And as an apostle and as an elder, John is rightfully calling it out as he sees it. These people who are preaching this false gospel are called deceivers because they're leading people astray. And they're called antichrist because they're, they're, they are destroying the foundational pillar and really di- directly undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one practical application here is to have right theology, specifically in regards to the incarnation, that God has become a human being in the person of Jesus 
Christ. The fault is clearly laid out in verse 7. John says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So to repent from this would mean to confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's the right way to go about it. But John's letter isn't to these people. It's, it's to those who do confess the coming of Christ in the flesh. Now look what he says to, to the church. Uh, verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your, into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. For us to remain faithful means being watchful of ourselves. I think what this looks like is being careful, very careful of the ideas the philosophies, and just the the plain noise that we subject ourselves to on a daily basis. People and and the things that that we allow space into um, our lives and and into our brain space are are going to inevitably influence our behavior. It's going to influence the way that we think. They will influence our beliefs. I think this is a strong caution because those who become deceived don't always know that they are deceived. They, they're convinced in their deception. And so I, I'm becoming a podcast guy. I never thought that I would, but I, I love learning. I found I love learning really random things that I'll likely never need to know. And, and, and I love doing that while I'm doing something else, right? I love listening to fascinating stories on weird origins. Like this week I learned about uh, the origins of double-entry bookkeeping. So Steve Harrington, you probably uh, can appreciate that. Um, It was a 90-minute podcast. I listened to the whole thing. I was fascinated by it. I also learned about uh, modern playgrounds and where they came from in the United States. Also very fascinating. And, and some of the, as I'm listening to these podcasts, I, I've, I've actually found that while some of them are just purely educational, they're just talk, talking about what happened or stories or accounts or even the news, some of them really do present um, ideas and philosophies about life. Like, it's really difficult for people to talk for 90 minutes without kind of sharing how they're wired, right? Their perspective on how to approach different things in life. And I think that I found that, honestly, if, if I'm not being careful, they can, these podcasts can, in, in their practical and in, in a very subtle way, um, start informing my perspective on life and what I value, what I prioritize. As they talk about being more efficient with your time or working harder, or even just the things that they talk about, it's like, well, why are we talking about these things? If we have 90 minutes to talk about anything, why are we talking about double-entry bookkeeping? Right? Are there more important things to be talking about than that? And so while this can be beneficial, it can be beneficial for me to listen to podcasts, um, especially when those are sermons from churches, I think that it can be potentially dangerous listening to people who don't abide in the gospel as they talk about everything in life, who don't have their, as their starting point the gospel. See, John is very clear in verse 9. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The idea here is that we never graduate from the gospel. 
We never graduate from Jesus' teaching. Everything that we can know and need to know is revealed to us in the Word and the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's no deeper life hack to find. There's no higher vantage point that we can kind of use the gospel to get to to see more, have a better perspective. There's nothing that the gospel can help elevate us to. The gospel is the beginning and the end of our spiritual enlightenment. That's where it is, the gospel. It is the ultimate perspective. It it must be our spiritual and, and intellectual home base. It has to be where everything that we use to perceive the world around us exists. And look, this is not me saying don't listen to podcasts, right? So I think that there's a space for podcast. Podcasts can be super fruitful. I know that Mercy House University is launching their new season. The first episode is out right now, so I'm not knocking podcasts. And I'm not saying don't read what non-Christians have to say about psychology or raising children or how to manage your investment portfolio. Like, I'm not saying avoid those things. But this is a caution for us that in our seeking of, of practical understanding and knowledge that we don't let, let those things determine and define our gospel understanding. In fact, it's our gospel understanding as we abide in the teaching of Christ that, that really should determine and define all other aspects of our life, not the other way around. Those of us, those people who are called the deceivers and the antichrists, they they were looking for something new, something more. They didn't abide in the teachings of Christ. They they wanted to use it as a platform for, for greater insight, for more power. And in their selfish pursuit, they deceived themselves and began working against the gospel movement that, that they started in. They started with the gospel. It's an account that really should bring some pause and caution to the way that that we're focusing our attention and where we're positioning Jesus' teachings in our lives. Is it ultimate? Is it the thing that helps us inform how to make all other decisions, how to navigate through life, how how to do everything? Or is it a resource? Or is it just like a stepping stone to something else? So my question to you, Mercy House, and for myself as well as I've been reading this text is, are we abiding in the teaching of Christ? Are we abiding in the teaching of Christ? Is our home base the gospel? Is it the lens that we use to look through to to solve our problems, to make plans for the future, to to make decisions? Is all of that being informed by what what we see as revealed in the teachings of Christ? Of Christ, or is it in other people? Is it in old books, or is it in new podcasts? Is it whatever's trending on social, or, or what we're seeing in the news? Is it what others are talking about at work? Is it our own intuition, our own sensibilities? Do we abide in God's word, the gospel, or have we made our home elsewhere? We're using resources, we're using things to make decisions, whether we like it or not. That's just what we do. We ask our friends, we read books, we go to YouTube and ask, how do I determine my future, right? We make decisions based on on the information that we get around us. And the biggest question, the biggest push from this morning in, in this text is, what do we go to to make those decisions? What 
do we look to? What are we listening to? And it could just be ourselves. It could just be us saying, you know what? I think I know what's next. I know the best course of action. John would say to abide in Christ's teaching. And that's the main push of the sermon, to abide in Christ's teaching, Mercy House. This is what will bring fruit and life and joy to us as a community as we abide in the teaching of Christ. As we look through the lens of Scripture for everything, as asking God for wisdom and discernment, and, and He'll give it to us. And for us really to dive into the depths of the knowledge of God in His Word, to take the time to study and learn and understand what it is that we're reading. As we see there, the, the second half of verse 9 says, whoever abides in the, in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. The way that you get the Father and the Son is that you abide in the words of Christ. So we actually have a, a bonus benefit. I have a, a number eight on that as well. And so we, we take communion every Sunday, and this is typically read from memory. Someone will come over and take this, but I, I want to put the text up there so you can see this. So number eight, through Jesus, we have a new covenant. Through Jesus, we have a new covenant. Verse 26 of chapter 26 in Matthew, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is, my, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God became a man to make a covenant that would reconcile the relationship between God and man. This was the promised plan. This was the fruit of the incarnation. And as we take communion this morning, I want us to be able to just rejoice in some of the realities and the implications of God becoming human and coming into the world as Jesus Christ. So I encourage us to take the time to reflect on what this means for you. What, what is the most impactful point for you this morning that Jesus, the God-man, came into this world? If you're not a believer, this really is one of the main barriers of intellectual entry into faith. The belief and the confession that Christ is not just a man, not just a good teacher, not just a wise philosopher, but a fully God-man in the flesh. So I ask that you would take this time to just think about this. You can pray about it. If you're new here at Mercy House and you're a believer, the way that we take communion is we come down the center aisle and there will be two people in front and then you just swing back around. You can take your communion cups and then you're going to find your seats around the back. Um, there's going to be people in the back too to pray. If you want to help process or talk or pray for myself or other people, we really encourage you to, to take advantage of that as well. And so our, team, our worship team is going to come back up and they're going to play a couple more songs. And really the, the worship that we get to experience right now is because of God coming in the flesh. So if this is a doctrine or an idea that you've kind of had on the back burner, like, yeah, I know that Jesus is God. Well, I encourage you to really meditate on that this morning because there is a wealth of fruit and worship that can come out of that if we really dig into it. Let me pray for us.
God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for you, Jesus. We thank you for, for, for your coming into this world. We thank you that we can see through you the, the, the face of God. We thank you that through you we have um, our sins paid for, God. We thank you that through you we have freedom from the power of sin and Satan, God. Lord, we thank you that through you we, we get to experience a love um, that would otherwise just be impossible. And so this morning as we take this communion um, that was only made possible by your coming and through the covenant that you established while you were here in the flesh as God, that we would give thanks for that. We thank you, God, for dying for us, for paying our debt. We thank you for coming. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.